Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hello and welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week, we bring you an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to visual artists, we talk to musicians, photographers, uh, and people who help promote the arts in their community. Today, we're going to be talking about the writing life and the natural world with our guest, Amy Nasukumatatil. Amy, welcome. Hi there. Thanks, Larry. Thanks so much for having me. Well, really appreciate it. You're here uh, in advance of your latest book that's just is going to be coming out very soon uh, in early September, World of Wonders. And uh, it's kind of a you're you're best known as a poet and you have several uh, books of published poetry. But this is this is a little bit different uh, essays and uh, nonfiction kind of essays. And so talk about why this this new direction for this book. Yeah, you know, I'm so excited about this because um, it's my first chance uh, in a collected uh, form uh, to write essays, you know, and my, my graduate degree is in both poetry and creative nonfiction. But, um, you know, this is this is a little bit of a departure for me because I primarily, as you said, um, write poetry. I'll always be a poet at heart. Um, that's not going away anytime soon. But, you know, when I wanted to... Um, write about the outdoors, I just found line breaks were too restricting for me. I wanted the expansiveness that going margin to margin um, would allow me. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I call it the tyranny of the line break. I wasn't interested in, follow, in um, you know, following the tyranny of the line break anymore. So it's, it's pretty exciting. But these are still pretty short um, essays, you know. Um, uh, even a three-pager, I felt like I was running a 5K, you know. So I'm still used to that compression of poetry. Well, it's and, and so thematically, it's it's about about the natural world and different uh, different elements of it, things that have, have have caught your interest over the years in terms of very specific things, as well as kind of uh, memory pieces about uh, things that you remember from your life. So uh, a big theme comes through the through especially in the earlier chapters about your parents' interest in the natural world and how they kind of brought you into it. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about kind of how how they introduced you and how that kind of um, took you on this path of this interest. Sure, sure. You know, my parents, it's funny, they, um, you know, I kind of joke their love language with each other is through the garden, through um, just working the outdoors with each other. And uh, you know, they came from very different places. My mom's from the Philippines. My dad's from South India. And they met, they both were Elvis Presley fans of all things. So their first date was the last time Elvis um, played in Chicago. Um, and so, so yeah, so we've been to Graceland. We've been to Tupelo. Those were our family vacations as a kid. And, you know, um, I think... One thing that I just find so extraordinary, and I didn't always appreciate it growing up, but I certainly appreciate it now, especially also now, too, as a parent, is that no matter how busy they were or how much they worked, and both of them were in the medical field, they always found time to um, let me explore out the outdoors, 
either through taking me on hikes as my dad did or just letting me be outside. You know, they didn't really, there was no such thing as like structured activities. It was basically, you know, um, you know, my mom would say only boring people get bored, you know? Um, so that was like the greatest gift they could possibly give me as a child. And one that I try to instill with my own two boys, you know, I try to not let them be on the screen and just try to get them to be content without electricity, you know, and find things to, to marvel over in the outside. So, um, but I was, you know, as most, as most writers, I was a voracious reader growing up. So anytime we couldn't go outside, my parents always made sure that we had access to a library. And the library is one of the most special and magical places for me. Um, but, you know, in, in all the books that I had growing up, I never saw anybody. I was so excited to turn to the back, like, who is this marvelous scientist? Who is this writer? And they were never Asian. They were never anyone who even remotely looked like me. Um, so I just, I guess kind of maybe after a while, you just start internalizing it, like, maybe this isn't for you. Maybe you shouldn't be doing this or, um, you know, and I, I was not that great at math, <laughs> you know, the the old stereotype of Asians, uh, Asian Americans being math whiz kids. That was not me. Um, so I, I think I just, you know, gravitated towards the outdoors because uh, that is something that I, I got to be really good at with identification and, and learning about the outdoors. Um, but it was a very weird disconnect to not have books that featured anybody that looked like me. Were you reading natural history or things like, I'm trying to learn typographies and things as a child, or was that something? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I, I realize how nerdy this sounds, but I mean, still at 45, my idea of good time is sitting down with a book and reading about the history of the giant squid. And, you know, I mean, I'm still that same six-year-old girl who I, I read more, maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm an English professor, but I read more natural history and science books than I do literature, actually, you know, and, and from there, I think that's, that's where my vocabulary comes in from, you know, um, learning the vocabulary of plants and animals, uh, it becomes kind of second nature when I'm doing my own writing as well. You're listening to the Arts Hour on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is Amy Nisukumatatil, and we're talking about her new book, World of Wonders. Well, that enthusiasm comes across in the in the different essays. They're kind of uh, focused around a specific um, animal or reptile or 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 uh, plant or tree. And uh, the first thing that strikes is just your your enthusiasm. You want to really tell people about these uh, about these animals or, and what you've learned about them and, and why why people should be interested in them. Talk a little bit about that kind of that advocacy part of what you're trying to do. You know, yeah, I think there's, um, isn't there an old adage, you catch more flies with honey or something like that, you know, and, and I, I love, I think they're very important, all the, you know, the environmental stories um, that, that have a lot of warnings, a lot of warnings based or, or threats, like if we don't do this, this tragedy will happen. And there's definitely a time and place for that for sure. But I just find, especially in dealing with, with children, with people who maybe think they're too busy for it, if you just show, if you just share what you love, um, it kind of becomes, it's like what you said, I find that it becomes contagious, you know? Um, and when you know about uh, a cassowary bird, for example, or you know a little bit more about a catalpa, 
you start to want to protect it just without anybody saying you must save the catalpa trees of Mississippi, you know, um, because you get to know about it. It's really, I find that with humans, I find that with plants and animals, once you actually get to know about a little bit more about a human or a plant or an animal, you don't want to harm it. Um, and you have that appetite, that appetite for destruction decreases less and less, you know, so, um, it's never anything that I set out purposely to do. That's all a byproduct. Or, so I'm so glad that you mentioned that. But really, my thing was just to kind of to show um, my nerdiness. and But also to, um, I just want to share. When you love something, you want to share with the world. You know, like, have you seen this jellyfish? Have you? Do you know what this plant looks like? Do you know what it smells like? And if you don't, fix yourself. You know, like, go, there's so much, there's so much to be excited about on this planet while it's still here, you know? Um, and anything that comes after that, hopefully it turns into advocacy, hopefully it turns into action. But primarily, I think I think we could all use a little bit of joy, a little bit of rem reminding each other what it means to be, to be having wonder in our lives. Something else that um, came up that I was thinking about in terms of your in telling your story of growing up is that you, um, you, your family moved around a lot. So, and not just from state, state to state, but you, you crossed regions. So you spent time in Arizona, you spent time in Kansas. So I, I was just curious about how that, that, you know, your, that widespread experience in different zones, different geographic zones kind of informed your, your, your vision of the natural world, you know, beyond someone who, stayed the same place their whole life yeah yeah that's such a good question you know um i think it was in some ways it was it was i just feel so lucky i wish i could go back to tell eight-year-old amy you know um you're a little bummed to move now but it's gonna be i promise you it's gonna be worth it in the end i just got to you know i just got to see so much of this country and fall in love with so much of it so um, you know, I was in suburban Phoenix before it became this giant city, you know, um, full of air conditioning and, and watered, uh, overwatered um, golf, golf, uh, golf resorts and, and things like that. But being able to look at the night sky in Phoenix um, is different, but no more amazing than the night sky, say, for example, in the, in the Kanza Prairie of Kansas, of Western Kansas, you know, um, it's different, but you get to appreciate just the different nuances and you pick up on that, even as a kid, you know, nobody, nobody was saying, now, Amy, you must read this book on the Kanza Prairie to learn all about it. You just get to live it with experience, you know, and you get to know the different nuances. Oh, the Big Dipper is here now and, and things like that, or this cactus, um, definitely don't try to touch it or you'll get a big rash or something, you know, or this one blooms so beautiful just after a rain. Um, you just get to know a different vocabulary for all parts of the country and you want to protect, you know, it, 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 I just don't have any one sense of like only the Southwest should be protected or only the South or only the North. I think that's so weirdly destructive in a time like this, you know, especially now in 2020. Um, I can appreciate the sweet little creeks in Iowa um, just as much as the the organic blueberry patches uh, in western New York, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't know, I just, it really has helped me 
have this kind of all-encompassing love for the natural wonders of this country. Um, and it also helped me realize too, as I was growing up, that you could always find solace in the outdoors, no matter how tumultuous, you know, there was some, the biggest move, I write about this in the book, for me was in high school. No one wants to change high schools, especially when you're, you know, I was senior, I was the sophomore class president and, and things like that. Um, I had my own set of friends and then we had to move. But at the same time, there was a consistency throughout all my moves. And that was the outdoors. Um, I never felt lonesome because I had the outdoors. You know, I could always, you know, point to the stars. I could always identify plants or animals. So those kind of followed me through um, into adulthood. And that it wasn't a spooky place or, you know, a lot of people see, that, you know, nature or the woods as this forbidden place. But it actually it's kind of full of friends and, and people that, you know, discovery rather than this kind of uh, place of, of, of a frightening place, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's also and you make such a good point. It is. Um, I recognize that privilege in being able to feel safe and secure. And the, and the irony is that there are several places um, that on paper would seem absolutely uh, not great for a, a young teenager to be wandering around by herself. Um, I mentioned my mom is a doctor, and we lived on the grounds of several state mental hospitals. And so when I say I'm outdoors, I'm outdoors on a mental hospital um, ground, you know, grounds. And yet, it was honestly some of the most safe places because first of all the security all knew who we were my sister and I and they knew us as the doctor's children and we were you know being monitored unbeknownst to me but we were on tv cameras we had you know security patrolling they knew to kind of look out for us so we always had that but I also know that there is a big segment of this population that does not feel safe and secure and lots of horrible things have happened um, in the outdoors, in the woods, from trees, you know, and so part of what I do now as a, as a as an adult is try to kind of encourage kids, try to um, work with groups to help kids who wouldn't normally have the chance to be outdoors or who um, who don't have parents who are able to take them outside and lead them through, you know, um, and develop that kind of early sense of wonder and advocacy. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB. I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is Amy Nizukumatatil. She's a writer, a poet, uh, teaches at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, and she has a brand new book of essays out called World of Wonders. Um, before we get too long into the interview, I wanted to make sure people knew about uh, the, the visual element of this book. Um, in addition to your essays, they're, they're really just gorgeous illustrations uh, of the animals and plants and other thing, other subjects of the book. And so talk about how that, that came about and some about the artist. Yeah, you know, I, um, I envisioned this collection as I was gathering up uh, these, these short essays, I was envisioning um, a reader who maybe had never heard a single one of these animals or plants before. And, you know, and actually, um, and that was before I ended up including something like a monarch butterfly, which I feel most people have seen um, in person, if not if, cert if not certainly um, on the page. But there's other things like the cassowary, the um, the ribbon eel, the axolotl. That again, I've, I've I've been writing poetry now for or publishing poetry for you know over 20 years. So I'm pretty confident in my descripting, uh, description of abilities, um, descriptive abilities, but uh, I wanted to convey that joy and that exuberance with just the right artist who could capture like, don't you wanna just hug this little pink salamander or don't you wanna just um, stare open mouthed at this giant whale shark who also has an open mouth looking back at you. So. It was also really important, again, thinking of that eight-year-old Amy who was on the floor of her library thumbing through dozens and dozens of nature books. Um, I never saw, so not only did I not see authors who even looked like me, but I also never saw illustrators or painters who painted the outdoors um, or who drew the outdoors who looked like me. So it was very important for me to find an Asian American artist who captured that, who, who could draw the botany and the and um, really scientifically accurate depictions of the animals, and yet just have maybe a 5% whimsy in there so that you maybe get a little bit of extra curve of a, of a mouth going upward, so it really does look like a smile. Um, just a little, little bit, but yet still feel like you've actually seen or heard or smelled the animal just based on my descriptions and then um, Fumi Nakamura's uh, illustrations. She's a genius. She's a genius. I was just, every time the Milkweed uh, art director, um, Mary Austin Speaker, every time she sent over a new illustration, I almost just wanted to weep. It was so perfect. It uh, Fumi just, it was like she reached into my brain and, and brought to life these incredible creatures and plants um, for you all to see. So how was that process? Were you was she getting a chapter at a time, or, or how did how did that? Yeah. Was there a collaboration between you two at all, or? No, and I kind of wanted it. I wanted there to not necessarily be a collaboration. I wanted to write the thing first. I think it was really important for me to write it first. And she, and she also, I think I don't want to speak for her, but I think she would also say it was important for her. Once I explained the project, how there really wasn't a book like this ever. So much of the books of the outdoors. Um, don't feature Asian Americans. And she really wanted to honor my vision of what these animals and plants looked like and felt like from my point of view. Um, 
and I think she really just wanted to take that and try to bring that to life rather than me trying to write towards, oh, the way she bends this monkey's arm or something like that, you know? Um, so I really so appreciated that. It was a collaborative effort in that I knew that if there was a question of color or um, I think the only thing I ever asked about was maybe the pupil of one bird's eye. <laughs> um, otherwise, I just trusted her genius and she trusted in my metaphors. And, and that way it was a collaboration. But she very much waited for me to finish each essay before she, um, before she tackled the illustration. Well, for folks interested, I would definitely encourage them if it's if it's safe for you to go and check the book out in person to see see the illustrations and it's a really really beautifully uh, rendered book in addition to the writing. Um, well, let's talk. Let's 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 grab a few of, of uh, highlights from these. Talk about a few of these animals and plants and the one that uh, well maybe one that that's familiar to people because you 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 bring in a. A local example that people could go see is the catalpa tree, which yeah. exists on the campus of, of, of your university. So that's right. That's right. You know, it's um, it's a tree that I first encountered in, when I lived in Kansas. And, you know, my sister and I, I think some other neighborhood kids would gather up their long foot long kind of seed pods. And um, we knew that there are these worm. We, there are these worms that fed on them, and the locals called them catfish candy. You know, things like that. Um, but I so I was really tickled, and that was actually to to go on with what you asked me before. I found it was it, just all of my travels and moving around all over the country. Certain animals and plants would still follow me around. Like I did not know. I had no idea when I was twelve years old that. I would come to eventually live in Mississippi and the champion catalpa tree of the state of Mississippi, meaning the biggest recorded catalpa is actually going to be on the campus where I eventually worked in, you know? So I, I just love these kind of cyclical, um, it's like seeing an old friend again, you know? And so while I very much spent most of my childhood feeling like an outsider in terms of schooling, um, you know, many times my family was the only brown family in the in the town or um, or in my classes. Um, it was nice to see little familiar friends. Oh, hi, red-spotted salamander. Hi, catalpa, you know, that kind of thing. And many times I find even my students here at the University of Mississippi, they walk by this champion catalpa tree. Um, you know, there's a fence all around it. There's a, a big plaque announcing it. And many of them spend their four years in not really knowing what that means or giving it a second thought or knowing the name of it. So that's one of the first things I do when I teach nature writing or environmental literature is that we all go out and circle around the tree and they get to see and um, if they're really gentle, get to feel how giant these beautiful leaves are. Um, and then they can stand in awe of this gorgeous tree that they, you know, several of them tell me, you know, oh my gosh, I've walked past it. I never even knew that it was there kind of. Why? Because they're on their phones all the time, you know. So, so it's a, it's kind of a, a a thing. We I challenge them to see if they can go if they could switch classes without looking at their phones, and it's tough. It's tough for many of them, but hundred percent across the board, they all say that they actually notice things. They notice a bird call. They they recognize a tree from their grandmother's yard or something like that when they actually put down their dang phones, you know. So it's, uh, you know, and I'm guilty of it too. It's not like I'm anti-screen for me, but 
it's a good kind of reminder to 20 somethings, to kids, is that there's so much out there to be in awe of if you just notice it, if you just open your eyes, you know? Um, so anyway, so, so that was kind of, that was one of my favorite discoveries when I first moved to Oxford is finding out that um, not just any catalpa, but the champion catalpa tree is right here in Oxford. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is Amy Nasukumatatil and the book World of Wonders. Another, I think, one of the most, one of the more kind of uh, mystical, uh, there's many mystical plants and animals in the, that are featured in the book, but the, you mentioned it before, the axolotl, I oh, thought was especially just, and, and w- once I saw the face, you know, I was like, oh, I, I remember that, but I, I didn't know anything about this, this animal and T- tell me about how you how you discovered it and 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 why it it, it speaks to you. No, I think it's um, you know I'd only ever seen it in zoos. It's it's extinct now in, in the in the natural world. So, but it it was it's got a face. It's like what you said. Once you see this face, you just kind of never forget it. And it kind of was just impressed upon me as a young kid. The first time I ever saw it in a zoo, and it really does. I'm anthropomorphizing here, but you know, it really does look like it's smiling, and that's just its resting face. The the mouth, the edges of its mouth curve upward into a smile, and yet it's a meat-eating amphibian. It's really messy. It, it, it likes to eat, you know, live worms, so it looks so cute. It looks like this kind of pink fairy that lives underwater, except for when it eats, and then it's a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> but once I started doing a little bit, you know, because I just... I love, uh, there's just so much to be curious about on this planet. Once I started reading a little bit more about it, and this is before I ever knew I was writing a book, I just wanted to learn about this smiling amphibian. Um, Once I learned that, A, there's no more of them in the wild, but B, they're primarily used for kind of medical experiments because they're one of the creatures on this planet that could just regenerate itself again and again and again. And there was actually one kind of somewhat horrific study where uh, there were scientists who were working on, you know, um, using some of their skin cells to to work for for human grafts after surgery and things like that. But in order to to prove that it could happen, this poor axolotl's arm had to be cut off a hundred times, you know, and it just, I just love, there's something so... The metaphor there of, of just regenerating no matter what happens to you again and again, all with a smile. And you know that the axolotl is not properly thrilled that this is happening. And yet it keeps pushing out another arm, another tail, another, you know, and it keeps going. I just, uh, I don't know. I just, I'm not even an amphibian person, but I just love that axolotl so much. I just love the moxie of it. And I also wanted to have it serve as a warning as like, look what happens, you know, um, let's not let another amphibian die off, you know, um, uh, from the wild. So anything, and, and, and you know, it, it just, I find them so cute. <laughs> you never see stuffed axolotls anywhere. Um, I think now you can, but certainly not when I was growing up. And certainly if you wanted to stop a conversation, all I had to do is just start talking about axolotls. <laughs> I think the rest of the neighborhood kids would be like, okay, Amy, <laughs> go play kick the can over here or something, you know. And 
So, you know, I mean, but that's just, that's just me. I'm still, again, that girl who just was so excited about all the different plants and animals that the average person, I think, wouldn't normally feel as cute or beautiful. And I just wanted to share that, um, that not everything has to be, have a happy ending necessarily, but if you get to know about uh, a little bit more about them, you'll want to protect them a little more. Yeah. One more that stood out, it just, uh, because of the the experience you had was the whale shark, mm-hmm. and, and you mentioned in the in the chapter you said, well, I was on sabbatical studying about whale sharks. So how did how did you what was your, what were you doing there? Yeah, so um, I know I always I feel I have, I have to always put a little asterisk on that um, because I was also raising two kids, helping raise two kids, and and trying to do my other writing and and teaching research. So it wasn't like I was floating in the Pacific Ocean um, researching whale sharks on on the university's dime or anything like that. But I I knew that my next project was gonna be environmentally focused. I knew that um, I wanted to know more about these animals and not just from a book. Um, And I had big, big plans to go to the Philippines at the time um, that were, which is one of their big um, kind of breeding and um, and migration um, holds are on the planet and also happens to be where my mom is, is, uh, is from. Uh, and then I was pregnant and I just didn't want to, and then I, I didn't want to travel with an infant around anywhere or a toddler at the time. So I found in Atlanta, Georgia, there was a program where you could um, apply to study and, and snorkel with the whale sharks. So I thought, okay, if I can't go to the Philippines in the uh, Pacific Ocean, I guess I can go to Atlanta, you know. Um, and yeah, so that was a program. I, w- I guess I was just not prepared. If, if anybody here has been to that, um, the Georgia Aquarium, it's the biggest tank in North America. Um, and I, at the time when I went, it was fairly new. So they actually had about three or four varieties of shark, actual shark, like carnivorous sharks, such as a hammerhead. And um, oh my goodness, uh, there was, I think, a not a tiger shark. There were sand sharks there, hammerheads, um, which are notorious for kind of ex- so-called accidental attacks. Um, so I was confused, like, aren't they going to separate us from that hammerhead? <laughs> and they didn't. They just they gave us the reassurances that they would feed everybody before the humans got in the tank. And I guess I trusted that enough. You know, it seems a, I don't even know if I could do this now. <laughs> But at the time, I just put my faith and trust in them that everything would work out. And it did, but I think nothing ever prepares you for seeing the enormity of this creature. It's the largest shark um, on the planet. It's bigger than a school bus. And it's, you know, you, you feel really small and insignificant right next to it. Even though these are supposed to be the most gentle, they call them almost like Labrador puppies. They're supposed to be the most gentle sharks really um, on record um, towards humans. So I think what was important for that is just to get to see them in its in, a, in the water. And yet, as you see from the, the essay, it wasn't a completely positive experience. I also realized that no, even though this is the biggest aquarium in, the, in North America, it still is not big enough for them, I don't think. And I know there's many, many good things that come out of the Georgia Aquarium, but, and I'm so grateful that it exists because they do so much with conservation, but 
once you're in there and you see these these whale sharks, and there's like three or four of them in there at a time, circling around in circles, you know that that's not natural. So it was very overwhelming, and it's mixed, and it's complex. Um, I was grateful to get the chance to see them, but I immediately regretted it, that I contributed to part of this. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's just some animals that should not be kept um, kept inside, and, and the whale shark is one of them, you know? so. Again, that doesn't detract away from the awe and the majesty and the love I feel for these creatures. But I also wanted to be honest with my reader and say, you know, whale sharks shouldn't really be swimming in circles, no matter the best of intentions. They really should not. When you see it, it's like having a school bus spin in a circle. That's not natural. You know, that's not right. Um, so again, I, I grew up loving and visiting research aquariums, but but that one was was tricky. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission. And today our guest is Amy Nasu Kumatatil, and we're talking about her new book, World of Wonders. Um, well, I was, I, I was hoping we could end up kind of like you, you talked a little bit about kind of, you know, passing your love on to the next generation. And I think the chapter on monarch butterflies kind of hits it kind of your efforts to try to instill this into your children and, 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 and just par- being part of your everyday life in that. So maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about that as an example, or if you had another example. Right, yeah, I wanted to touch on maybe um, a f- more of a familiar animal um, or plant for when I talked about my children in particular, kind of in hindsight to show that it doesn't take someone who's traveled around the world to have the sense of awe and wonder, you know, um, something as simple as the butter, as the butterfly is actually so complex. And one of the biggest kind of, um, miraculous displays of, uh, of just that reemergence of looking like something is going to die. I mean, if you really look at, um, the signs of what happens and I'm not a scientist by any means, but what happens to the caterpillar inside the chrysalis, it liquefies first before it becomes this beautiful butterfly to emerge. And they're so so good for the planet. They're so good um, for Mississippi. And uh, just even something as simple as planting a native uh, pollinator garden just makes such complete sense because A, you know, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, but A, these plants are already suited to Mississippi soil, you know, so there's actually less maintenance. So a lot of times people think, oh, I don't have time for a garden. If you plant a native or pollinator garden, 
that those plants are used to working with the Mississippi sun and the soil and the rain conditions. And then the birds and the insects, and more importantly, the butterflies and the bees are so, so, so happy. Um, that's their food source. So uh, I think it's nothing something that I purposely ever did, but you know, the boys are always so curious. I've, um, they're older now, the tweens, they're, you know, um, 10 and, and 13, um, and they still do it, but very much so when they were kids, they always wanted to see what mommy's doing in the garden, you know, and I think they just, just by, again, picking up the vocabulary of what is a pollinator, you know, um, what is this chrysalis doing, you know, and just having them, just not giving them access to screens, <laughs> kind of doing what, what my parents did in the 80s, you know, you have to make your own entertainment outside and look at uh, look at this garden that you have to 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 draw from to uh, to observe, you know, to kind of get excited about. Um, and you know, one thing I uh, over the years I've been teaching poetry to uh, elementary school kids all over the country, and one thing I never have to teach them is how to wonder or how to look or be in awe. You know, most of us are the first words they ever say is. Uh, one of the first words that the people that kids learn to say is, look, look at this. Wow. You know, and it's mostly on things outside. Look at the moon. Look at this flower. Look at this rock, mommy. You know, something happens, though, in around junior high where that sense of wonderment or that awestruck sense gets kind of lost. Or maybe someone says it's not cool anymore to exclaim over the moon or a flower. Um you know, I, I joke about the one time my, my eldest has ever gotten in trouble in school is when some, one of his kid friends told him, oh, butterflies are only for girls. And he, he was just basically like, you know, I think, he, I think the word he used is he called him a name. My son called him stupid face. Shut up, stupid face. You don't know what you're talking about. And then my son got in trouble. So I think that was the only time <laughs> I had to defend my son in a, in a principal's office to explain, like, you know, this is not appropriate in the first place to have nature appreciated by gender. What the heck, you know? Um, so I, I just think uh, if we could go back to that kid that was all of us at some point where we were exclaiming over the outdoors before anyone told us it wasn't cool anymore or there was more important things to do or, you know, that kind of thing. I think a lot of the problems, honestly, that we have would be gone. Um, we'd be more tender towards the outdoors. We'd be more tender to each other and to ourselves, really. Um, again, I'm not a psychologist, but there's so much written um, by people far more expert than me about the healing properties of just what being outside does to you. Um, forest bathing, um, just finding that sense of peace when you're outside. And I don't know about you, but I think we could all use some of that now. Absolutely, absolutely. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Amy Nisukumatatil, and we're talking about her new book, World of Wonders, that's coming out early uh, next month. Um, so how does that extend? So you teach at University of Mississippi and uh, uh, teach in the creative writing program. How does that um, try? Are college kids uh, open? You know, We talked about junior high kids where the that, that kind of closes down on the wonder element. Are you able to get... Are college kids open to to this kind these kind of thoughts, or is it is that a challenge as well? 
You know, it's not as much of a challenge as you might think. I think a lot of times college kids get kind of a bad rap for being, you know, only caring about what's on their phone, the latest TikTok dance or anything like that. But I think if you get them in a space where I just kind of start asking about their childhood or what they what they find intriguing or interesting, what they're curious about, they realize, oh, this is actually someone who is interested in what I have to say. This is, and they're with other people that slowly but surely getting the first ones to talk is always hard, you know? But then it's just a waterfall. One person remembers, you know, climbing this tree at grandma's house. Another person remembers how their dad taught them how to catch crawfish. And the first time they ever um, went fishing and, and really got to kind of see the inside of a fish um, before they cooked it, you know, they all, we all have stories like that of being in awe of the natural world. I think it's just giving them a vehicle and a place to study that and to a place where they can share it without any fear of being made fun of or um, or being told that that's not cool. In fact, what's not cool in my classes is not sharing, you know, what you're in awe of or not finding or just being disaffected to everybody, you know? So um, I think once you just kind of open that door for them, the students I found um, from all over uh, the state um, you know, many of them grew up in the Delta, so they have so many just glorious histories of watching birds from the Gulf come in. Many of them have, you know, have survived big, big storms and what happens to nature after a storm and, and how they've um, worked outside with their parents to help restore kind of their land and stuff like that. It's They've got so many important stories to tell. They just need a place to kind of tell them and assignments uh, for them to write about it. Um, and they all come away in my classes with this sense of urgency, like let's make sure my younger sister or the generations behind me also have these memories too, that they can remember what a goldfinch sounds like or um, the first time they went fishing with their uncles, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, so no, I think I, I love working with college students because they're so, they get so excited once you give them a chance. You have to give them a chance though. Yeah, yeah. And they become hungry to learn, you know, most of, most of them end up buying bird field guides. They want to be birders. They want to learn about the birds. And, you know, I don't think that stuff gets talked about a whole lot, um, uh, for Mississippi college kids, you know, but there's a good, there, you know, we have a, an incredible program on, on campus. We have something called Delta Wind Birds. That's, that's, um, one of our professors on campus has, and, um, it's just, I think if you just give them the opportunity um, and a chance to share that excitement with with other trusted people, um, they will come, they will come. I'm curious, we're in the, the midst of, um, of of summer right now and a lot of stuff's happening outside. What, just like right now, what what's happening in your garden? What are you, what are you, uh, you know, tending after or what's what's catching your fancy right now outside? Well, you know, this might be just, wrote for some people who've lived with this all their lives, but I did not have this. And that is the Mississippi hummingbirds are, are in full force right now in my garden. Um, you know, this morning, I mean, we're going through so much sugar, putting, <laughs> putting sugar water out there. And I just never, I hope I never get to a point where a hummingbird becomes passe for me, or, you know, I still get that jolt of electricity when I see that zip of emerald going through the backyard and drinking so greedily from 
the feeders and the and the and the bee balm out there and and the different flowers I have out there. Um, but soon it's going to be. It's right around this time when the chrysalis, the those chartreuse chrysal chrysalises come um, hanging down off the fence lines, and so that's that's going to be the butterfly watch. That's going to be the monarch watch of of seeing which chrysalises turn and hatch and which ones unfortunately don't, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a brutal time, but beautiful time um, right now in the, in the garden where you see so much death and life happening kind of all at once. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Excellent. So uh, World of Wonders is coming out in early September. You've got a lot of, um, of course, you would probably be out on a book tour at that point, but can't do that right now. But, but it sounds like from what I read, you've got a lot of kind of virtual events coming up. And so if people are interested, where would they go to find out more about that? Sure, yeah. Um, my uh, website is amynez.net. And um, you can also check out my publisher's website. They're the most up-to-date um, ones right now. Uh, it's Milkweed Editions. And if you click on the events tab, I've got events coming up with Square Books and um, uh, eventually, I think in, in October, Lemuria. Um, but the beauty of one of the silver linings uh, of this pandemic is that people from all over the world really can, can kind of chime in for free. I made sure that all of these events are free and um, you just need to have a, a laptop or a phone and, and you can zoom in from all over the country. Um, so basically, I think we start as early as next is uh, a couple weeks from now and it goes pretty solid through October. Um, so, so yeah, so if you can't catch me one day, uh, just check out the calendar and I, I will soon be um, giving another Zoom uh, chat a little bit later as well with a, with a ton of amazing friends. I have Casey Lehman coming up, um, Hanif Abdurraki, my friend Ross Gay. So uh, I'm almost never alone at these events. Um, I'm always bringing along some of my writing, writing pals with me. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.